This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an improvement to VFR charts. And an Embry-Riddle survey uncovers diversity bias. Also, are L-Birds back? The NTSB faults the pilot in the Kobe Bryant crash. Finally, we look at the gamma numbers out today. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, we finally got somebody else to pull some weight around the office. And that'd be our boss, Tom Haynes. He, he interviewed... <laughs> Nick Hoffman, who is the host, this is a, you know, he's a renaissance man. Let's see. Most people would probably know him from the outdoor channels, Nick's Wild Ride, TV show he's got where he hunts around the world. He's also a country music star, player, musician, and a pilot. He also composed a song for us on the spot. And we'll talk a little bit more about runways, wings, and gasoline when we talk to Nick. Okay, perfect. So uh, let's get to the news. First, just something we want to make everybody aware of. Not a lot to talk about with this one, but... Instrument pilots, of course, are already familiar with the FAA's update cycle on those charts. That's every 56 days. Now, VFR charts, historically, sectionals have been about every six months or so, and that's about to change. Yeah, they're going to join the IFR chart publication schedule, if you will, for every 56 days as well. So that'll be a little bit less confusing for all of us, and we can get our in-route terminal and supplemental chart products all coinciding. Yeah, so if you are still one of the 10%, this is by surveys now, if, if you're one of the 10% of people who buys charts, you will have to buy it every 56 days, which is a downer. However, if you're like the rest of us and you do it electronically, of course, it's just going to be served automatically with your subscription. But keep an eye out for that because what that means is obviously, like you said, it's going to be better. There'll be more updated information and hopefully fewer notams. Sounds good, Ian. And we can save a little bit of money there too. No, we can't save money, can we? If we're going to be buying them more often. Yeah. No, it's going to going to have to spend it. Although I haven't bought a paper <laughs> chart in ages. I don't know. I've, when was the last time you bought a chart? Oh, it's been a while. Um, and I was going to let folks know that, you know, we, we also edit a publication called the eBrief. And I was going to let folks know that on that eBrief, I put a question out at the top of the week asking if uh, instrument pilots use 
a tablet or you know some kind of EFB versus a printed chart. Because I was confused myself. I've been doing my instrument training and using paper charts, but it is so much easier you know, using an electronic chart. And, and most of the people that responded to that survey, Ian, use electronic charts. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's true. Although I will say on instrument stuff, I still like to have that piece of paper. I'm, I'm an old young man. It's like, I, you know, I, I like to have that. I mean, I, I obviously use the tablet and that's primarily what I have. But if I had my choice, I'd still probably keep some paper. But, but yeah, I'm with you. So if you use, if you use Forflight, Garmin, whatever, you'll get this automatically, these new charts, which is a good thing. So moving on, this is something we wanted to touch on a little bit because it gets a lot of play, I think, mainly, obviously, on places like Facebook where people kind of engage in these debates. But it's an interesting study that came out of Embry-Riddle recently, a student there, and they looked at basically inherent bias in aviation. So they, they showed some pictures of uh, women, minorities, and then white men and asked people to describe how they would be as pilots. And, and the results, I would say, aren't terribly surprising. No, they're not, Ian. And, um, you know, we've learned this in, in journalism class that, you know, we try to walk down the middle of the street and we try to present, you know, the arguments for and against different things. We always try to get two sides of the story. But folks are born with certain, you know, certain factors that are that are sort of inherently biased. And this is what that survey looked like. I thought it was interesting that they used it via, you know, via photos. Like, how would you feel about flying with this pilot and showing a photo of, of a minority? Or how would you feel like, you know, flying with this pilot and showing a picture of, a, you know, someone who's not a minority? So I thought it was interesting that people have this certain bias that they grow up with. And that is part of our sociological upbringing, as I learned when I went back to college. Yeah, so they they showed all these pictures and they asked about the quality of the pilot, the professionalism, flight safety, smoothness, and confidence in the pilot. And of course, I don't know if it's because of things that people have already seen throughout their lives, like you said, or or if they do have maybe a known bias, but white males by and large were considered, you know, sort of higher quality pilots. They did the same thing. I thought this was interesting with students. They they showed people photos, they said these are student pilots. And then they asked about their likeliness to succeed in training. And the same thing happened. White males were found to be more likely to succeed with the people who, were, who uh, participated in the study. And the reason that this is important, Ian, some of our listeners might know already or think about this, but there is still a pretty pretty decent pilot shortage. You know, we're looking at like in the next 20 years, a lot of folks are going to retire from ma the major commercial airlines. And even though we're in a downturn right now, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the gamma numbers, but even still the long range plans are still calling for increased air travel and decreased, you know, pilot career pilot populations. So we need to welcome into the fold of aviators, all kinds of pilots, young and old, black and white, you know, guys and girls, everything. It's just not going to be a smart move to to preclude folks from being aviators. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. The pragmatic aspect is, yeah, we're barely holding on. So why wouldn't we want everybody we can get into the community? You know, I mentioned when we started this, the, the Facebook comments and, you know, that people get involved in these sorts of discussions there. And that did happen. You know, this was posted on AOPA's Facebook page. And there was a lot of comments about, oh, there's no bias in aviation and you just should hire the right candidate. And, and you know, they kind of went downhill from there. And I will say this study didn't surprise me at all. The stuff that I have heard from other pilots 
both racial and sexist is just stuff that would make your head spin. I mean, and nowhere else in my life do I hear this kind of stuff, but there's something about aviation. And so I, I think to deny that there is a bias or prejudice is just naive. And so I think, you know, studies like this that, that show people that it exists are really important. And not just in aviation and other fields as well. And um, just as a, as a practical matter, you know, um, I've done a little bit of outdoor activity and you have too. You know, folks who have been skiing before, just think about this. Males kind of power through learning how to ski, you know, it just power through it. While it, it, females have a little bit more finesse, a I say overall or listening to the instructor a little bit more, you know, and and use some of the techniques a little bit better where guys kind of seem to have this power, you know, that use their power rather to turn and all rather than the finesse. You see a little bit of that in aviation as well. You see a little bit more finesse sometimes and that kind of thing. So I I just from from what I've seen, that's just what from what Dave T has noticed. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're, we're in the beginning of, I would say, the awareness factor here in aviation. And we got a long way to go before, you know, total integration. But, uh, you know, I, I think you and I agree on this wholeheartedly. It's like, let's get there from a moral standpoint, a, uh, you know, practical one. You know, I'd love to see aviation look like the rest of the country, you know. It will one day, Ian. We're, we're headed that way. Yeah. So, OK, moving on. Now, <laughs> you know, we're talking about looking forward. This story just it tickled me, and I guess it's because it reminds me of the L-Birds. So the Air Force is looking at, of all things, the X-Cub. The X-Cub being, you know, the latest Cub derivative from Cub Crafters. And they're looking at it as a essentially what the L-Birds were, which is to be able to extract people, really light cargo, search and rescue, that sort of thing. And they're evaluating it for possible active service. And particularly, they're doing flight testing for the Low Altitude Sensing Helmet System, or the LASH system. And to do that, like you said, Ian, you need something that's going to be low and slow, something that provides pilots with sensory situational awareness required to fly safely and at night in extremely low altitudes and slow airspeeds. So we were just talking about looking forward and you were alluding to the fact that now we're looking backwards. Yeah. 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 Some of the Elber technology. So it is interesting. And I think that that particular aircraft is one heck of an aircraft. We've written about it. We've talked about it on this show. So, yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. This part, you know, I was imagining it's like if you, you make it all the way through like the Air Force Academy or officer training or whatever, and then you get through the rigors of pilot training, you know, and you're flying like <laughs> the new T-6. And That's right. And then you get yeah. picked and you're flying. Yeah. An X-Cub. I mean, oh boy, are you one of the lucky ones or one of the unlucky ones? I don't know. Because <laughs> um, it's a heck of a lot of fun. But yeah, it's not like it's, you're flying an F-15, right? No, but you could you could be flying behind 215 horsepower in a three-blade composite uh, constant speed prop, which is pretty good for a Cub. That's right. So That's right. Yeah, man. Funny. Hey, so let's move on. The This is a story, you know, it's like something we got to talk about. But to be honest, there's not a whole lot to say here. And that is the NTSB's final decision in the Kobe Bryant crash. Now, everybody remembers, this is the Sikorsky S-76 that crashed in California, killed Kobe Bryant and many others. The NTSB has put out the final report, and David, it's sort of the same old story. Yeah, the pilot's decision to continue flight under visual flight rules into instrument meteorological conditions, and of course that often and did in this case led to spatial disorientation and loss of control. It's a, it's a story as old as flying is just about, Ian, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really is since the beginning. 
Now, one, one interesting thing that you and I were chatting about before we got on the air, you know, doing our show notes, was the fact that, you know, that these helicopters are capable of having terrain awareness and avoidance systems. And the NTSB did not fault the helicopter company for, for not having that. But they, they did say that it would have been a darn good idea to implement that. Yeah, they also didn't have a safety management system, which, as you know, they didn't have to. But, you know, it just seems like, yeah, I mean, it's it's all about the pilot's decision to uh, fly into instrument conditions. And and I think people say, well, why didn't you just, you know, sort of file and, and go IFR? And, and the bottom line is helicopter pods, a lot of them, even though they might be rated, just don't do that on a regular basis and they don't feel comfortable doing it. Right. And I think that company, their, their charter, if you will, probably did not. And I don't think it included the fact that, you know, that they could file an instrument flight. Now, when the pilot checked the briefing ahead of time, there was nothing. And the NTSB backed us up. There was nothing that, that came to mind that said, Hey, don't fly. You know, it wasn't great, but it was normal. So, you know, quote unquote, normal conditions for a helicopter, which is again, flying low and slow. But the problem is the conditions got worse during the flight. Yes. And Ian, that has happened to me. And I yeah, might have happened to you. Let me tell you, in my instance, I distinctly remember flying from Maryland over to the to the coast towards the Chesapeake Bay. And the conditions went from not great to really poor to, oh, my God, what am I doing here? And then so I did what we were taught to do was I did a standard rate turn to the left, uh, did 180 degrees and backtrack. Now, the conditions did not immediately improve for me, and I was scared blank blankless, um, but eventually it did improve. Um, so I pulled that 180 degree maneuver and, and went back as we we're taught from the ASI and from our flight instructors and, and everyone else. But you can so easily be pulled into continuing ahead. And the pilot was trying to get the passengers to a specific event at a specific time. Mm -hmm. There are these other factors. It's a lot of pressure. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's happened to all of us, I think, after you fly for a while. And, and you have to recognize when it's happening, as you did, and do something about it. And this pilot we know recognized it and unfortunately made the wrong decision. So yeah, it is a shame, but not a whole lot to learn from this one. So anyway, that's, that's kind of closed case on it. Want to talk, finish today talking about the gamma numbers, the year end gamma numbers. We talk about this every quarter, but now we can talk about 2020 as a whole. And, you know, as we've been saying recently, mixed bag. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we were going over some of the numbers ahead of time, looking back at 2019. But the bottom line in, in 2020, we know that the coronavirus hit and that really curtailed a lot of uh, aviation, mainly commercial, but it also hit GA pretty hard at the beginning when people were not flying and there were safety protocols in place. There still are. But a lot of don't forget, a lot of the manufacturers could not manufacture aircraft for one reason or another, or it could be there were stay-at-home orders. It could be that, that they diverted part of their supply line or their manufacturing line, like Piper did, to making face masks and face shields for, for um, healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. But overall, the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic negatively impacted GA, and it stifled the industry growth per GAMMA's report that was released today. And the numbers were not great. Uh, we lost about five billion bucks in billing between 2020 and 2019. Hmm. <laughs> that's a lot of dough. Yes, that's a lot of dough. Now you know the piston sector of the, uh, the industry held its own, 
and we'll talk about it in a couple of minutes, but the turboprop, bizjet, and helicopter sectors were yet again down. You and I have talked about this several times that and, you know, when the Gamma quarterly reports come out, but yet again, they were down yeah. while while pistons were, were relatively, it's not, I won't say strong, but held their own. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about old story. I mean, that's starting to become kind of the, you know, it's like we can pre-write the, the story because that's exactly what's been happening the past couple of years. Pistons are holding their own or up slightly and... Turboprops, jets, and helicopters are down. So the total piston airplane shipments here in 2020 were 1,312. That includes singles and multis. And I, Ian, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering if you could take a real quick look at 2019 and see what the total numbers for that were. Yeah, I'll be your historical, your uh, the the historical voice in your head. They were 1,324 last year. So just a few. Yep. A few different, but where we come to find a lot of the difference in the numbers are in the actual aircraft that were produced, the models that were produced, and the billing numbers per model, which you actually ran some numbers and came up with some pretty good figures. But the bottom line was that, you know, we looked for, for instance, we looked at a couple of the manufacturers. Let's look at Cirrus right off the bat. They're an industry leader. So total units this year were 420. That included 73 of the jets and 291 of the SR22 slash 22T models. Take a look back on what did we do at Cirrus last year? Yeah, so last year, 81 jets. So they were up on jets last year and 331 22s and 22Ts. So that's a good 40 more SR22, 22Ts than this year. And that goes back to, you know, how and, and 10 more, almost 10 more jets. So you're looking at billing, you're looking at numbers. That's where the discrepancy is on that line. We took a quick look at Diamond Aircraft and there were 143 of the Diamond DA-40s produced this year. Now, this is interesting, Ian. You took a look back at, at 2019 and how many DA-40s were produced last year. Yeah, so the 40s is 126. So it sounds like they were up on the 40s. Up on the 40s this year. And overall, 239 total units with Diamond aircraft this year versus... 233. So they are an overall success story, I would say. That's interesting, but maybe one of the few. We did a quick look at the Piper aircraft, and you know they came on strong with the Piper 100i pilot model, the Piper Pilot 100 and 100i, and um, they've they've continued to do strong with their Archer. So these are basically the the 100 180 horsepower Pipers, and we're looking at this year numbers of 149. Piper Archer 3s plus 11 of the Pilot 100s. That's about 160. If you put them together, what, what do we do? What do we do last year? 182 last year. So down a little bit. You know, we did talk, I remember, uh, boy, months and months and months ago now, one of Piper's struggles and maybe with others was exporting airplanes. So Piper's done a lot of work in the past couple of years internationally. They've done a lot of international fleet sales. And I know for a time, at least, they struggled to actually, you know, it's like they were producing the airplanes and sitting on the ramp because they couldn't actually get them out of the country. Couldn't get anywhere. You're right. Because of, of you know, rules and regulations and can't travel to other countries because of COVID. So yeah. there they are on the ramp. Makes me wonder if that hurt them a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now another company that's hurting overall, you know, on the bigger picture, although they've sold more trainers is Textron. So 
we looked at the Textron 172 Skyhawks this year, and that's an, an incredible amount of Skyhawks. 241 Skyhawks were delivered in 2020. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, 126 last year. So, the, man, they almost doubled production. That That's phenomenal. It is good. It's great. However, you took a closer look at the overall value of those aircraft. Yeah. And you came up with some startling numbers. Yeah, th- this was really interesting. So give me the 2020 overall units. So oh, you, f- you figured it out for me, but I'll say it, $404.58 million per unit. Now, look, we know a 172 doesn't cost $4.5 bucks, but... But Cessna sells a, a lot of Citations and a lot of the King Airs, you know, so and a lot of the higher end Bonanzas. Yeah. So taking that overall 559 total units from Textron, build out to basically about 4.58 million per unit. Okay. So so yeah. So they had fewer units. Fewer units. And. Uh, the each unit that was delivered, average price was what was it? Four point eight million, right? For four point five eight. Okay. So in twenty nineteen, they sold six hundred total units. So not only did they make more airplanes, but each unit that it went out the door averaged six million bucks. So, so that's a lot. One point five million more dollars represented by each aircraft. So they'll probably see that as well. You know, maybe holding their own during the pandemic, but. That's that's not a great story. Obviously, they want to produce more jets to be able to bring more money per unit into the door. You know, higher margins, obviously, on jets. So, and that's that's kind of the story all around. Unfortunately, you know, when you look at the overall numbers of total piston airplanes produced, uh, which we said a few minutes ago were were one thousand three hundred and twelve. I just did a little ramp appeal story for AOPA Pilot Magazine, and there were about five thousand air coops produced in 1946 <laughs> alone you know uh, an airplane for, close to your heart yeah, yeah for yeah they, they are but but forget any other model but five thousand of one airplane you know that's just incredible that is incredible yeah yeah we're a far cry from that aren't we but uh, you know it's good to see training you know i think the providers they are still hurting for airframes so good to see them buying airplanes and that'll refresh that light end fleet which is which is big because you know I wouldn't be surprised if there's still a couple of air coops there actually out on the flight lines <laughs> for initial training. <laughs> you know, that's 1946. right. Yeah. But if you look at the, the overall numbers, we're talking about the report and all, um, you know, getting back to reality. The thing is that we still need, and we talked a little bit about this when we, we talked about the diversity story. We still need more pilots. We still have a lot of folks that are retiring. We still have that attrition. Um, that staring us in the face. And so uh, that that market still needs to grow and the training market is growing. The universities are still training pilots. Yes, big time. Yeah, a lot of the individual flight schools are out there. They're still doing good training and there's still that void that needs to be filled. So mm-hmm. this is an interesting time for aviation. Yes, very much so. Well said. So, hey, let's bring in our guest, Nick Hoffman from Nick's Wild Ride. And like we said, you're going to hear from the boss man this time. Tom Haynes got to sit down with him and hear his on-the-spot song. So Nick, how is it that a kid from Anoka, Minnesota ends up as a pilot, adventurer, a musician, and all these wild things? Uh, how'd you get from there to here? 
man, that's, that's a long story, you know, uh, but I think it all starts with my upbringing. I mean, my dad and my grandpa are the first things that come to mind. They're both kind of Renaissance men, uh-huh. you know, they're both engineers, both engineer minded kind of people. My grandpa was an engineer. My dad is like an engineer minded kind of guy. And he was always really, really obsessed with aviation. So growing up, for me, the pilot side of things came from him, but also my dad was always building something or doing something or going on a trip. We were always RVing, we were always traveling, we were always doing something. And I think my dad always inspired this kind of sense of wonder in me and sense of wanderlust a little bit. Right. And I don't think my dad got to travel and do as much stuff as he would have liked. And he always talked about the things he'd like to do. And I think they always inspire me, you know? Yeah. So I fancy myself a jack of all trades and a master of one. You know, I, I'm a pretty good musician. Other right. than that, I, I, I spread myself a little thin with my interests, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. But you find your way pretty early on to, I guess, to Branson for as a, as a musician? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, actually, I, I technically, I ran away from home when I was 16, 17 years old. I had a... a I was playing music all the time. I had a band called Crucial County. It was a bunch of teenage bluegrass players. Uh And we were... Garage band kind of thing? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Very much so. And we started getting kind of popular, and we were working a lot. We were playing a lot of music. And so I was missing school a lot. And I had a principal that called me in to the office one day, and he said, you're going to have to repeat your, your junior year of high school because you've missed 10 days total. And I was getting good grades, I was doing my homework, I was doing everything, and I said to him, I said, the reason I've missed these dates is because I'm playing music and that's what I wanna do with my life. And he said, you'll never amount to anything as a musician. Give up on that dream right now. And uh, and he said, you're gonna have to repeat your junior year. And, And I couldn't picture myself spinning my wheels any longer. All I wanted to do was get my music career started. So I hopped a Greyhound bus that that night and went to Branson. Looking back, that was a pretty bold, brazen move that was pretty stupid, really. But uh, my poor mother, you know. Uh, Seems to have worked out. Yeah, things worked out okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so you played in Branson for a while and then... Yeah, I was in in Branson for a little while and then I moved to Nashville. And uh, I've had a kind of career that most people... And myself, I mean, it's the kind of thing I only would have dreamed of, right, you know. Right. You played some with uh, some pretty big stars. Yeah, so I moved to Nashville. I moved to Nashville in January of 2000, and I was 19, you know, and just ready to take over the world. And I moved there to be a, an artist, to have my own songs on the radio, to do, you know, what I had always dreamed of, which was... I want to be Garth Brooks, you know what I mean? And I ended up getting the the gig of a lifetime. I ended up uh, joining Kenny Chesney's band when he was just starting to really blow up. And I, wa- I was there when the whole thing blew up and we started playing stadiums for 60,000 people and stuff. Just literally every musician's dream come true. And and so it all started there. And from there, I got to, I've gotten to play with a bunch of other big names and big artists and then in 2010 I ended up with my own record deal with my band The Farm and we had a couple of top 40 songs and so now the next step is I've got my first solo record coming out oh, uh, at the end of the year so yeah, I'm really excited about that I don't know yet oh there's a, I, I, uh, that, to be to be uh, disclosed later on TBA okay. yeah okay so it's one of those things that doesn't happen in the beginning <laughs> no no I haven't decided I, I think I, I think I know uh, what I'm going to call it but I'm not 100% sure yet right. yeah and so season 6 of Nick uh, Wilded Ride is coming out pretty quick. Yes, season five is about to hit the air on September 7th, and then we 
we start producing season six right away in September here. So just crazy. I mean, you know, as a kid who all I ever want to do is play music, I always was really, really interested in, in the outdoors. And so this idea that I'd have an outdoor TV show, I'd have laughed in your face. I, I never, never saw that coming, never in a million years. So for me, it was always about music and hunting was something I did for fun. Right. And so this TV show thing was a foreign idea, really. Right. Same thing with uh, this new aviation show that I'm working on. I mean, I, I tend to apparently tend to take my hobbies and turn them into professions, you know, because <laughs> this uh, this new show I'm really excited about is the same thing. I'm taking my love of aviation and kind of turning it into a show, yeah. you know. So it's called Runways. Runways, right. When might we be able to see that? Do you have a sense yet? I think so I think Runways will probably start airing sometime next year. We're going to start producing it in late this fall. Right. And I'm really excited about it. It's, and it, you know, builds on the Nick's Wild Ride brand, and it's just really following me, living out my wildest dreams. I mean, taking a single-engine plane all over the, the country and all over the world and setting down in unlikely places and searching for interesting food and history and culture and music and people yeah which aviation is full of interesting characters there are a lot of interesting characters <laughs> yeah in aviation yeah no, no doubt about it where's the intersection between the adventure parts and the creative musician part and the aviation part that's a good question you know i think the intersection is passion I don't tend to do anything half-assed, <laughs> you know, I tend to do things with gusto and passion, you know, and, and that, that goes for my music and my music career and my songwriting and everything. It, it, it transfers into my, my love of the outdoors and I, I attack that with, with a, a lot of gusto and the same thing with aviation, you know, I, I love it. I live the lifestyle and so I think the intersection of all those things is just genuinely my passion for them. Yeah. So you learned to fly as a teenager, but yeah. you, went, you got away from it for a while and came back more recently. I, I literally am the quintessential rusty pilot, yeah. and I learned to fly. I started going to Oshkosh with my dad when I was a, a little kid, you know, and I was just obsessed with airplanes. In fact, my very first flight ever was a Young Eagles flight at Oshkosh. Huh? And then on top of that, I talked the the captain of the Ford Tri-Motor into letting me ride along, too. I was like nine or something like that, you know, and, and uh, but so... I've always been obsessed with aviation, and I learned to fly when I was a teenager at Crystal Skyways in Crystal, Minnesota. And I bartered my my flight time for pumping gas and scheduling lessons and stuff like that. So when I moved to Nashville, I had my private pilot's license and I was flying a lot. And then as my career took off, I just didn't have as much time. And I, I, I lapsed in currency. And every year that went by, it seemed more and more daunting to get it back. I still flew a lot with my friends. I'd always be bumming rides with my friends that had planes and stuff. But I always knew I'd dive back in. I just didn't know how. And as 15 years ended up going by where I wasn't current. And so it was daunting. What do I do? Well, I remember everything. It, you know, I didn't even know how to get started. And actually, it was the AOPA Rusty Pilot stuff that's online that I found that convinced me that it's not as hard as you think. You know, once a pilot, always a pilot, right? And so I did. I, I used those those materials, and I dove back in. And as I like to say, I when I dove in, I dove straight into the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, straight into aircraft ownership and everything. I mean, and I've just I haven't looked back. I've just been flying my butt off. Yeah. And literally, it's it's been a saving grace for me. Aviation came back into my life right when I needed something like that. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So what's next on your aviation adventure? 
I'm about to buy a new plane. Uh, what are you gonna get? I'm looking for a glass star okay. right now. That's I'm a gonna good adventure I'm, plane. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna dive into the experimental world for a little while and uh, I'm really excited about that. And my buddy Mike and I are actually partnering on it and, and I love having a friend to do all this stuff with, you know. Yeah, it's a good adventure airplane. Gonna be able to throw my guitar or my hunting gear or anything I want in the back and my wife and I can go wherever we want and I'm really looking forward to that. So when I get that, I think that's gonna be the impetus for me to start doing some back, more backcountry flying, taking, inter, making the passions intersect a little yeah. bit, maybe taking a plane to go do a hunt on my own. That's one of my dreams is to fly myself into a hunt, hunt, take everything out, fly myself out. You know, that's, people do that all the time in Alaska, but that's, for a Minnesota boy, I've never done that, you know. <laughs> I get asked all the time, you know, hey, I wanna learn to play guitar or I wanna learn to fly. You know, the thing, that somebody knows that I love these things. And this, the same answer applies to both music and flying. If you wanna do something, especially nowadays with YouTube and everything else, it's so easy to start consuming things and diving in. But really, you can, you can go on the internet all you want, but you need to step into a music shop or you need to go to an airport. And as soon as you do, you will find someone who will, who will take you under their wing. And aviation's especially like that. I mean, you walk into a, if you walk into an FBO and say, I want to learn to fly, somebody's going to help you. And that's always been the most incredible thing about aviation in general aviation, especially is the community. Somebody will always help you if you, if you just ask for it, you know, show up, must be present to win, right? So David, I think that is the second singer-songwriter, in fact, second country singer-songwriter we've had in two episodes. So I don't know who we've got next, but uh, I don't know. It's I'm excited. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, Nick Hoffman seems like a good guy. Runways, wings, and gasoline. Don't forget, you can get that via our AOPA Top 100 Flying Songs, which are, are now on Pandora. But also, look for a music video of the studio version of Nick's song, soon on the AOPA social media site. So let's keep our eyes and ears out for that on social media. Okay, perfect. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk. And wherever your podcasts are, you know, whether they're Apple or Android, Google. And also you could probably ask Alexa to play hangar talk if you wanted. All right. <laughs> we'll see you next time, David. All right, Ian. Thanks. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.